Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, the Myth of Sophia series, exploring the depths of myth and wisdom. I'm here with my co-host, Will Lynn. Will, welcome back. It's, uh, it's exciting to be presenting this particular program in this format uh, on video for the very first time. And uh, it's great to, uh, to join you uh, on set, as opposed to in studio, uh, with our special guest today, uh, Bob Walter, who's the executive uh, president of the uh, <clears throat> Joseph Campbell Foundation and co-founder along with uh, um, uh, uh, Joseph's uh, wife, Jean, I guess it is. And uh, we're here to talk about mythology and get into it. I've had the privilege, of course, as most people have, of watching PBS and seeing the wonderful Bill Moyers uh, series uh, on uh, um, the power of myth. And it really ties in with, uh, quite literally, what we've been talking about for the last year and a half, two years in terms of mythology, and I'm really excited about uh, the prospect. So I'm going to let you uh, uh, handle the introductions of our special guest, and uh, again, it's great to have you here, and congratulations also on achieving your uh, PhD since the last time we talked. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, wanted, I do want to say just a little bit about where we are. Uh, this is, uh, we're on campus at Relativity School, uh, and I just, you know, I want to thank uh, Glenn Callison, uh, Will Ramsey, Veronica Shea, uh, and Lisa Mandel for really making this work and making this happen here. Uh, I'm really excited about it and excited to do a continuing series series here. And uh, I'll be teaching the mythology course at the at the Film and Arts School, and I'm really excited about about doing that as well. Um, but let's move past that. I really want to introduce Bob Walter, uh, who I was fortunate enough to get to meet with yesterday, and we had a great lunch. Um, and uh, <clears throat> to throw it out there really quick as we can. Robert Walter is the executive director and board president of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, which we call the JCF uh, for short. He helped to found it in 1990 with Campbell's widow, Jean Erdman, and in 79, he began working with Joseph Campbell on several projects, including the Historical Atlas of World Mythology, for which he was named the editorial director. Since the death of Campbell in 1987, Walter, uh, uh, Bob Walter has served as the literary executor of his estate. In this capacity, he has completed the first two volumes of the Atlas while overseeing a number of additional publications and documentaries, including the 2008 reprint of The Hero with a Thousand Faces and Mythos, a video series that can currently be found on Netflix. Under Bob's leadership, the Joseph Campbell Foundation has been extremely proactive for the last 25 years, uh, which we're going to talk about as much as we can. Uh, but I do want to point out that before working with Campbell, uh, Bob did a, a number of things. He was a, a founding faculty fellow at the California Institute of the Arts uh, and a uh, professor there. And he's a, been a professional director and playwright as well. Uh, and he is the uh, treasurer and founding trustee of the United Religions Initiative. And he holds an ex officio position at Opus uh, Archives. Uh, and I think, is it right, you even, uh, you're the president of Marin County High School District. I'm a, a trustee of the uh, Tamalpais Union High School District, which is the consortium of five high schools in Southern Marin. Aha. Well, thank you so much. It's an absolute honor. Thank you for joining us, Bob. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's yes. my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here, Will. Thanks. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that the other, the other man that we've got to bring in the room is uh, Joseph Campbell, and uh, I think it'd be blasphemy for me to attempt an introduction with Bob sitting here. Could you uh, give us just a couple lines on, on who Campbell is, knowing that we're going to just, we're going to keep talking about him and, and that work? Well, um, jo Joe, my friend Joe, is, is really the person who I think brought a contemporary consciousness of mythology uh, into, into popular culture and, and, and into the conversation that has proliferated 
uh, in all kinds of media today. He was a, uh, got his master's degree at Columbia um, in uh, medieval studies. His, his, uh, his thesis was on the dolorous stroke in, in romance. But what's significant about that, and you're going to get more than a sentence or two, not giving um, as much is, as you is that he went to Europe on a Proud Fitz fellowship, going to France thinking this is what he was going to cover. And once he got there, several things happened. First of all, he ran into Sylvia Beach. Um, and uh, Sylvia Beach showed him the work of James Joyce, which he found incomprehensible. Um, and uh, Sylvia Beach also pointed him uh, to Germany and said, really, the, the scholarship that underlies what you want is in Germany. So he got a set, his fellowship extended for a second year, went to Germany, immersed himself in German philosophy and in German studies. He, in Germany at that time, there was this tremendous influx of, 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 of what we now could call mythological impulses coming from the East, coming from Celtic traditions. This was all part of what was, uh, what was German scholarship at the time. And so he came back to Columbia and said, oh, I, I can't just do this, this narrow thesis. It's all opened up and there's all these other things. And Columbia said, no, 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 no. If you want a PhD, you gotta go down that PhD road and you narrow down your thesis and you're gonna keep it like this. And Joe said, well, if that's the case, I'm out of here. And so he dropped out, and he um, and he he went he 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 went up to Woodstock, New York. Um, the depression was on, and he read for five years. Um, he had an arrangement with a bookstore in New York that would ship him books, and he would send them back because uh, nobody had any money. Mm -hmm. And so he read for five years, and he emerged from that with this passion for mythology and for comparative mythology. And in his definition, mythology was very broad. Um, it, it, it encompassed not only what some people would talk of as fairy tales or folk tales today, but at its other extreme, mythology for Joe was another person's religion, meaning it was a belief system that gave structure and meaning to an individual and to a society. And so, he determined, um, he, went, he began to teach at Sarah Lawrence. He taught there for, for several decades. Um, but, but he decided that what he really wanted to do was, was make mythology and his passion important and significant and meaningful, first to his students at Sarah Lawrence and then to a literate public. Um, ironically, the first, the first book he did with Henry Morton Robinson is, remains in print today as a skeleton key to Finnegan's Wake. He, dove so far into the wake that for, for years, um, <laughs> Gene would talk about, Gene is from Hawaii, Gene Erdman, his wife, and um, they would go back to Hawaii on vacation, and, and they'd take this little boat around to this secluded beach, and they'd get out of the thing, and he, she said, Joe would go out with Finnegan's wake on his head, and me on his arm, and, uh, <laughs> and they would go ashore. And so, so, so he did with Henry Morton Robinson, the novel, the, A Skeleton Key to Finnegan's Wake, um, and, and it's significant, too, because Joyce in Finnegan's Wake really was uh, sort of the zenith of this uh, coagulation of global cultures. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of fun to me that you know, I, I worked with Samuel Beckett's work later in my career, and Beckett was Joyce's secretary. And, and, and they were actually, I believe, doing the same thing. Uh, Joyce was seeking this universal by bringing everything in, and Beckett was seeking this universal by taking everything out. Um, 
you know, and it's it sort of you come around, you come to the same place. And it's Joyce that gives us the term monomyth, right? That's correct. Yeah. And that's correct. And Joe picked up that term then for his very first, um, his very first book, a Hero with a Thousand Faces, his first solo autorial. Uh, uh, he, he was originally called um, a, a, a World History of Mythology or something to that effect, and it became The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And, and what he did in that book, um, which is w really where the impact in popular culture today comes, is he said, among all these great heroic figures and all these uh, uh, great um, religious leaders, th there's a common structure. And that common structure is also echoed in the cosmos. It's echoed in every person's life. And that's what makes it co common and makes it resonant. And he put in these, you know, he, he, he called out certain markers. Uh, at its base, it, 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 the, the hero's journey says that an individual begins in a, in, in a culture, in quotidian reality, and sees something missing. Um, comes to that age where, you know, um, the home fires are not, are not warming me anymore. And, and therefore goes out on an adventure, moves into the forest adventurous, moves out of the village compound, moves out of quotidian reality, and in, is separated from that, crosses some kind of a threshold into a different realm. Um, in that realm has experiences which we could categorize as initiation of some kind. There's battles and there's aids and there's helpers and, and then finds something that he sees that was missing and, and, and has to return and bring it back. And, and this happens over and over and over again. I mean, in, in your individual life, you know, you, you wake up, you go through your day, certain point you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And you're in another realm where all these different things happen and then you grasp mm -hmm. a little bit of it maybe and then you emerge mm -hmm. um, and, and then you can do it all over again. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's, that's the pattern. So. Whether, whether we're talking about Harry Potter or Star Wars or The Matrix or Mad Max, all of, all of these um, you know, drew on, on Campbell's structure, as do video games today. And, and it, 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 it almost became cliche to the mm -hmm. point where, um, you know, I, I was telling you, Will, I, I did this thing for the, the Southeast Interactive Gaming expo where we had seven people on the panel who had like 150 years of gaming experience and they called we called it um, the hero's journey leaving the roadmap and finding the true adventure Be because to find the adventure you're not really you know hitting these things There's, we get these notes saying well Campbell had seven seven or 17 or 14 steps you know and, and this person says there's 57 and this person says that these are just signposts along the way that you know there can be as many or as few um, it's really the cycle and he called that the monomyth. So this is part of what's sort of inbred in us as human beings to want to go scale that mountain or cross that ocean in a dinghy or whatever the challenge is, even to the extent, setting aside, uh, taking positions on whether you're for or against, why a lot of men and now women go to battle for their country or for their tribe if you're going back uh, uh, into other civilizations and so forth. So it's, this, so it's the representation of the very thing that we are always doing as you just stated with Will, uh, in our lives, but to a greater extent because we feel like uh, we need to do something noble with our lives. 
You know, I'm, I'm, Richard, in some cases that's true, mm -hmm. but, but the, the, the demarcation really is moving away from the social norm. And war can sometimes um, be right, caused by ca that, right? Right, or, or, or some things, the noble things are things that all too frequently is, is what the society says is noble. I mean, I think the thing about the hero's, uh, the hero's journey or the hero's adventure is that they step outside the norm, or sometimes they're shoved outside the norm. Mm -hmm. um, so, so to the extent that we're doing what, uh, you know, what we should do, mm -hmm. um, we're not arguably on our hero's journey. Can we talk about Thou Shalt? Uh, sure. He, okay, so so there's this great story, and Campbell really appreciates Nietzsche and thus breaks Zarathustra. There's this allegory where, where Nietzsche talks about the cycles of life. You're born a baby. I'm oh, sorry, you're not born a baby, actually. First, you're born a beast of burden, right. and you carry the weight of the world. You do what you're told, and, and uh, then you become... Uh, when you see that that which is telling you what to do is this great dragon thou shalt where every chink in its scale is 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 one of the commands of how you're supposed to be when the when the beast of burden realizes that that's what he's working for he becomes a lion and that then he kills that dragon and he slays thou shalt and i think that's a huge part of that hero's journey is to go beyond that beast of burden and to become the lion but then uh but then what happens the lion of course the slaying animal can't create a new so then you become a baby in the final step. And uh, I'll just cherry pick the opportunity to say that I think Nietzsche, by the way, some people think he went crazy at the end of his life. I think that that allegory describes what happened to him. And he just he was in his baby state and people that knew him as a lion uh, thought he had changed. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, uh, so I, I'm, I'm compelled by that one. And I, and I, and I actually... Uh, while we're talking about the cycles, I was wondering if we could talk about some of the, you talked about various versions of the cycle going on a ship, going on to, even war can fit it. And, but you also, I, I was wondering if we could talk about some of the uh, various cycles that get fed in, you know, the shaman's journey, the mystic's journey, and in various places, Campbell's talking about kind of all of them. Well, the artist's journey. And the artist's I journey. Mean, one of Jean Erdman's, my, my favorite aphorisms of hers is she said, that, that she said to Joe one day, you know, there's really no difference between the artist and the mystic. It's just that the mystic doesn't have a form. Hmm. Okay, so, 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 the, so the, 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 the experience is the same. The experience is um, stepping outside of reality, crossing, into a, crossing that threshold into a different mode of perception, a different mode of being. If you're an artist, um, you then render that through your paint, through your dance, through your music, through your song. Um, and, and which is why Joe says that the myths of tomorrow are in the psyches of the artists of today. Hmm. In other words, we don't really know what they are, but, but if we can find means to give them expression, to give them form, they will come out as, you know, as the next film or the next symphony or the next, uh, be, because they're my grappling with it, which is the other one, you know, when I was teaching in, in um, at Cal Arts, or even for that at Stanford, and with young artists, um, the, 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 your first impulse is, is if you you learn art history and you begin to appropriate and you begin mm -hmm. to try on different costumes, if you will, or different based on what your medium is. Mm -hmm. um, and really, the breakthrough is is when you throw that all away, and and you you make that unique statement, uh, which is baby like. Mm -hmm. um, it, okay. it, it's it's. You know, I'm no longer trying to out, you know, out Dada the Dadaists or out, mm -hmm. uh, you know, out cubistically render Picasso. But, right. but, you know, I'm now create this thing that's unique. And so 
that's the irony that the deeper and more personal the artistic expression, the more likely it's going to be that it's universal. Hmm. Hmm. Very nice. Uh, okay, well, while we're talking about the hero's journey, we should, and, and you had mentioned some of the influences, mm -hmm. we, we should just do the service, and, and quickly I should mention some of the who's who's that have, that have uh, been influenced by this work. So uh, Bob Dylan, Jim Morrison, John Steinbeck, George Miller, George Lucas, Jerry Garcia, Stanley Kubrick introduced Arthur C. Clarke to Hero with a Thousand Faces while he was writing, 2001. Uh, though Vogler, uh, through Vogler, he had a huge impact on lots of people, but more very specifically and directly on Aladdin and Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. Some people claim that The Matrix and Harry Potter have been heavily influenced by the work. Dan Brown goes so, so far as to admit that Robert Langdon was motivated by Joseph Campbell. Neil Gaiman uh, says that he couldn't finish reading The Hero with a Thousand Faces because he was afraid that it would be so, it would make him too conscious of the reality of it. So he would, he would interfere with this uh, unknowingly rela unknowing relationship. And you have, uh, you know, the shows Lost and Community were, have, were both influenced by Jason Siegel, uh, gives some credit to, to The Hero's Journey. But of course, the most, uh, the best known influence on Campbell's, uh, of Campbell's writing is, is on George Lucas. Uh, and I have a really nice quote from George Lucas. He says, It came to me that there really was no modern use of mythology. The Western was possibly the last generically American fairy tale telling us about our values. And once the Western disappeared, nothing has ever taken its place. In literature, we were going off into science fiction, so that's where I started doing more strenuous research on fairy, on fairy tales, folklore, and mythology. And I started reading Joe's books. Before that, I hadn't read any of Joe's books. It was very eerie, because in reading The Hero with a Thousand Faces, I began to realize that my first draft Star Wars was following classic motifs, so I modified my next draft according to what I'd been learning about classical motifs and made it a little bit more consistent. And then he went on to read several more books, and they went on to have a very interesting relationship. Of course, The Power of Myth was filmed on Skywalker Ranch, and uh, the National Air and Space Museum put on this great exhibit uh, to talk about the relationships of Star Wars and the hero's journey. But I want to ask you a kind of curveball question. Libby, before you ask me yeah, a okay, question, okay. I'll tell you one other th that, yeah. that most people don't know. Um, it, it, Joe, Joe grew up and you know, was writing and working in the village um, and, and in, in, in proximity to what we would now call the major modernists. So soon after we started the foundation, there was an exhibit in Florida um, that gave rise to a book called Abstract Expressionism and the American Experience. Uh, and I got asked to go down to the University of Arkansas where the guy who put this exhibit was. I didn't know, what, I didn't know this at the time. I, why do you want me to come to do this? Well, the thing that he found, he started getting intrigued with you know, seeing these abstract expressionist paintings with things like crossing the threshold, slaying the dragon, uh -huh. meeting the maiden. And, uh, and he, he suddenly realized that on the bookshelf of every single artist whose work he included in this exhibit, was a copy of the Hero with a Thousand Faces, mm -hmm. all marked up, mm -hmm. um, and and so so it's it, it it was a conversation that was really ripping through the creative class, if you will, in the 1940s, hmm. um, and then it kind of dove underground. Mm -hmm. um, I used it as a text at Cal Arts, and in art circles, it sort of was there, but it it, it uh, you know in in the sense of cycles, it. Um, came back mm -hmm. uh, the year after Power of Myth aired, or three weeks into Power of Myth, it made the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, wow. So from 1948 to 1989, oh, it appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. And, and parenthetically, it's one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential books of the 20th century. 
Well, so, so it, it, it and, and it's not, you know, Joe would be the first to say, it's not this book and it's not me. It's that I just happened to catch this thing that is so universal among human beings. Apparently he's yeah, really uh, given credit for influencing Robert Langdon, but as I, as, as the story I heard is that George Lucas wanted to meet Joseph Campbell, so he started going to C.G. Young Institute events in L.A. where apparently Campbell was presenting. I was, this is what I was told. And that, and that eventually they met, and uh, Campbell started flying to Skywalker Ranch. No? Okay. So not before Indiana Jones. So Campbell isn't Indiana Jones. No. No, <laughs> although I would not be surprised if... if um, I, I've been told uh, th that Stephen... Um, Modeled in, modeled, made that modeling, but not George. Okay. Okay. What what I what I know is, um, Joe would come to the West Coast for lectures. Okay, and uh, he would uh, he he got a note saying, you know, um, I'd like to meet you, mm -hmm. um, and uh, he didn't say anything about this note. He 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 came back and he said, he said, guess what? And I said, what? And he said, I saw three movies. And I said, you saw three movies? He said, yes, and they were talkies. <laughs> and I said, this is kind of amazing. What was the occasion of this? He said, well, you know, I got this note. And he said, so I, I said, fine. And he said, they, you know, they called up and they said, Mr. Campbell, your car is here. And I went down and there's this big, long, white car. And I got in it and I drove somewhere. And, and then I, got, I saw a movie. And I said, well, what movie? And he says, I, I don't remember the name. And I said, well, tell me about it. And he said, well, you know, there was, he said it was very strange. I mean, there was, there were these, there was this person and he was in these like white hallways and things and running around. And, and he said, it, it was, it, it, and he said, but the next one I saw, the next one, he said, it was the hero's journey right down. And I said, what was that? He said, well, it was these young men and they had these cars and they were driving around and they were like chariots and they were driving all through this town. And, 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 and I said, and the third movie he says, well, that was the next day. And he said, oh, that one nailed it. He said, that was in the, that was, you know, like it was like a Western in space. Uh -huh. and, and I said, was this George Lucas? He goes, that's the guy. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that, and, and, uh, and that was the first meeting as wow. far as I know. Wow. Um, now, if George was going to young lectures, he could have, um, I find it a little bit strange for George to have come to L.A. He well, avoided just, that under most I circumstances. Was, I was just looking for an excuse to ask if there was the, if he, uh... <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, no, that's what, that's what I know. It, but it, it is, you know, it is, uh, uh, the, the whole, the, the whole, my whole experience of 30-some years with Joe is really the making of a myth. And so now all these other stories have grown up around it. You know that that Joe was an advisor on Star Wars, and that you know right. that they, you know, <laughs> yeah. all this sort of stuff, and and not just Star Wars. I mean, uh, it, it is true. I mean, we've got files of people who, you know, uh, who 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 mention who we call J Joseph Campbell mentions, you know, and they'll be a musician, and they'll talk about it, and then they then they read the hero with a thousand faces, or then they saw the power of myth, and but but those those posthumous um, influences have, have created this contemporaneous scenario where they met each other. Mm -hmm. you know? now, <laughs> now, he did meet Jerry Garcia, and he did meet the dead. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, they, they, they called up and invited Joe and Gene to come to a, a, a rock and roll concert, and they put a, a sofa on the stage, and they sat there, and Joe said, man, it was just like a Dionysian rush, ritual. It was just this, he said, I've never seen anything like this. And, and uh, 
And so that did happen. I already called himself a deadhead. <laughs> that did happen. <laughs> Joseph well, Campbell he said, a deadhead. He said their name. He said their name is a living myth. Nice, nice, yeah. Let me ask yeah. you sort of a, and I, I ask this question with all due respect to anybody who has read or seen any of Joseph Campbell's works. Bob, do you ever get concerned that all of this is going to turn into an ism? That they start following Joseph Campbellians Campbell. or something. I'm sorry. Campbellians or something like well, that. Well, okay. Uh, uh, I was thinking Jungians, of like Jungians, right? Well, something like that. Yeah. Whereas Joseph and, and most of pe most of the people who who isms have been made of, that was never their intent. And I know in in watching uh, Joseph Campbell and and uh, being familiarized with him. That's not what he wanted. He wanted to get the message out. That was the yeah, whole point in terms of he, he said on, He said on more than one occasion, it's not about me, it's about the work. Mm -hmm. And mind you, I mean, I was, I was working, we were working at a time when Joe couldn't get published. Mm -hmm. I mean, we started a publishing company, Joe and Fred Vandermark and I, to publish his work because no one would. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had worked, we worked for, you know, for months, for years um, after the original contract for that um, he blew up and Joe gave the advance back and we kept going and we mortgaged our houses and we, you know, we started a publishing company. No one was interested. And, uh, and, and we were all living off our wives and, and there was this whole period of time during which we were just religiously pursuing this book that was going to be one volume and then it was two volumes and then it was four volumes and it was four volumes and multiple parts. And there was a day I said to him, Joe, you know, don't you ever get discouraged? I mean, because, you know, we're doing all this work and it seems like we go forward and then, and then it blows up and then we, we, you know, we think this is going to happen and then it does. And he said, hey, of course I get discouraged. You know, it, it can be discouraging, but I just have to tell myself that if, if, if what I'm doing has positively impacts one person's life, then it will be worth it. Um, and you said the same thing on one of our shows, by the way. Yeah. yeah. And it, so, so, you know, you put that up and, and then, you know, you have to have a certain compassionate tolerance for fanboys. You have to say, but <laughs> you have to say, okay, you know, really appreciate that. You know, it, it was worse right, right after his death. I mean, I, I had people, and so did Gene, and that's why we started the foundation. We had people showing up on our doorstep saying, I just saw this and, you know, I want to meet you or I want to see where he worked. Um, and and, and, and uh, it, it's, for me... Um, the, the, the more positive an analog um, would be to look back at the history of patron saints in, in Christianity. Mm. Meaning, you didn't worship the saint. Right. Okay? The saint embodied a certain quality or, mm. or certain attributes to which you aspired or to which your parents wanted you to aspire because right. they gave you that name, Sir William. Right. You know, but... <laughs> And, and so, so that's, that's the focus um, that, 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 that the reflection that, that I'll give when faced with someone who aspires to be a Campbellian saying, you know, no, 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 here, you know, if, if Joe means this to you, then, then the modeling here is to follow your own path, right, right. Um, is, is to go where no one else has gone. You certainly don't want to go where Joe went. We don't need mini Joes. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. we don't need... You mean many in both were M-A-N-Y and M-I-N-E. <laughs> M-I-N-I. Both ways. Yeah, right, right, right. Both ways. Both ways. Uh, okay, so let's, let's, let's dive some into, uh, you know, let's get into the work then. So, so he, there are a couple really good angles to get into the massive bulk of, that is his incredible work. 
And one of the easiest is just to start with the, the, four, uh, the four functions of mythology, the metaphysical, cosmological, social, and psychological, as he, as he names them. And uh, yeah, I was wondering, maybe uh, he likes to start with the metaphysical. Uh, you like to flip it around sometimes. Uh, do you want to start describe the metaphysical, sure. and then we'll work sure. work our way around? Sure. Um, well, <laughs> I shared this anecdote with you, with you, Will. But you know, in the very early days, we we said, you know, if we need the support, if we need to, you know, support the work of the foundation, we should make a Joseph Campbell wind-up doll. And when you wound it up, it would say the four functions of mythology are, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and then it would begin with the mystical. That the function of a mythology is to infuse all aspects of an individual's life with meaning and magic. Um, and then the second. Uh, in, in, in Joe's iteration is cosmological, to um, afford an, an image of the cosmos um, and, and by implication one's place in that cosmos. And then the third is the sociological, to explain where one is in relation to their society, what they do in their society, um, you know what, the, what their ex social expectations are for, for, for them living their life, and then finally, um, a psychological sort of where one is in their own individual journey. And you know, conceptually, um, I can understand that, um, but I've also come to realize that this is almost talking Greek to most people today, because we don't live in a society where the mythos infuses everything. We have a collision of mythologies that come at it's us. It's not like we're Greeks just dreaming about Greek gods. Right, or it's right. not like we're in the Renaissance where, you know, we go to the cathedral and, and, and you know, the, the, the stained glass and yeah. everything and, and, and what we do on a given day is all reflect, it's all, or you right. go to a primal tribe. Mm -hmm. um, in the Amazonian rainforest, you have no contact with anybody else. This is your reality. Yeah. And so you can understand that everything you're doing is, is trying to impact you on, a, on this mystical level. Um, what I do to sort of try to, to bring it into focus for, for people today is start the other way and say, say, to begin with, why do we read these myths from all these other cultures? And, and at base, it's because the human species hasn't changed in 30,000 years. And so these stories looked at on a psychological level still resonate. Um, it, you know, now, there are, there are kinks and differences. A lot of them, you know, there's gender issues that we address now and, and things like this. And we also have differing expectations. We have adolescence. I mean, most of these stories, there was no adolescence. Mm -hmm. You were a kid and you had a rite of passage and you were an adult. We've entered this whole thing in the middle in the adolescence, yeah, yeah, okay? Old age used to be 60, you were dead. 50, you were dead. <laughs> now we've got, you know, antiquity. I don't know what you call it. You know, but those of us who've gone past that. Uh -huh. So, so, so on, on that level, there's a translation. But, but fundamentally, the stories can still help you see the path to growing as a, from cradle to grave. And even as, as we had talked before about the packaging, because I remember seeing a, a scene from, from one of the interviews where they began to compare the book of Genesis to one of the, the writings from the Bhagavad Gita. And um, even though the, the, the words from the Gita were a little more difficult to comprehend, having the, the Genesis story from the Bible kind of helped to bring it into context better. But they were both saying the same thing. Uh, and, and that was one of the things that I, I found uh, quite striking was his, uh, his openness about saying, uh, uh, talking about the similarities 
between, at that point, the three, as they call them, great religions. Christianity, Judaism, and, and the Muslim, uh, Islam. <clears throat> and that's one of the things that I find so fascinating is, is how people miss that. Not just between those three, but because there are a, a myriad of other, uh, shall we say, um, minor religions. I mean, you mentioned Zoroastrianism. Yeah. Okay. And those stories permeate. But the packaging. Now you're moving right into the second level. Right. Okay, but the packaging the is what's level. the difference. Yes. Because not everybody's going to resonate with the Bible story. Not everybody's going to resonate with the Gita story. Not everybody's going to resonate with the Jewish story or the Quranic story. But some are. Well, and each of those stories then is cast in a social milieu, which takes you to the sociological level. So the challenge we then have if we're integrated as a human being and comfortable with where we are in our own life cycle is to find a social order or a community, mm -hmm. um, which are frequently nowadays not geographical, but communities of interest, mm -hmm. in which our understanding of who we are and our understanding of how we should get along with each other find resonance and, and, and are, are consistent. And, and that, that is a challenge. It, it's, you know, because when you get to that level, you also get into tribalism. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you get into defining yourself by what you're not. Well, so, at least I'm not you and I'm not uh -huh. like you. Yeah. Okay? Um, and and that's, where, that's where the first level of tension comes in. And, and, and that's something we're working with right now in the world today. Uh, and then, if you, you, you just assume for a moment that you, you do find that grounding uh, where, where you're not thought of as a lunatic, um, or, you are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you are, or you are, but that's okay too. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> but it's that place where, where, where you can find um, community. Mm -hmm. um, Sangha. Sangha, exactly. Then, the, then you, we hit a real problem because then, then, then it's a cosmological Im, you know, image. And when you talk about all the people of the book, um, mm -hmm. what you're talking about is, is a, uh, a narrative that implies a first cause. Okay, it implies, you know, the finger comes out, hits the mm -hmm. first domino and everything. And that's not what science and cosmology tells us our universe is. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's, and there's a major disconnect there. However, if you can walk that paradox, and if you can embrace the fact that you're, you are in this mystery, and that you own this mystery, because you can conceive of it here, okay, and yet, You'll never understand this mystery because you're just this little speck yeah. and you can live with that tension and form a cosmological image for yourself. Now you've got congruence on the psychological level, the sociological level, and the cosmological level. And my metaphor is it's like an old-fashioned slot machine. You've got three cherries. Mm -hmm. You pull the handle. And what happens? You get the gold coins. And the gold coins is this mystical awareness. And I now am mm -hmm. master of my destiny, you know, in communion with others, mm -hmm. um, aware of myself as in my life cycle and in the cosmos. Mm -hmm. And everything is magical. So here's the big question. In our modern day and age, we, our cosmology that science is trying to give us doesn't really allow for that because the cosmology that you hear over and over and over is we're tiny, the universe is huge, everything's made up of dead, inert atoms. And, and I know there's some challenge increasingly moving away, I think, from that model. But, but that attitude of we're tiny, the world is huge, and it's an attitude of isolation as opposed to an attitude of uh, integration, which is the whole purpose of the cosmological function, to feel 
combined with, to feel one with, to feel merged with, uh, situated. And, and yet there's also the stories that are coming out from a more spiritual perspective, uh, and you've already been name-dropping movies all over the place, so I'm, I'm going to feel free to do so. Uh, the, the, one of the latest was uh, that, that I saw that, that made us as human beings uh, appear very powerful uh, and, in, as you say, in control of our destiny, and that was Interstellar. Mm-hmm. Had had a most unusual twist, where you you discovered or the main character discovered, I set this in motion. Not they. There was no mm-hmm. they. Right. They is me. Right. I did this. That's the peak of the holy mountain. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. and so when we get to that point where we begin, and this is where a lot of our our programs come from, uh, our guests and and talking about. The, the more esoteric, metaphysical, spiritual aspects, and what Joseph even talked about in what I've seen, that everything that he's talked about is all geared towards the inside, yeah. the inner life. The, the outer life is relevant only after you have dealt with the, the dragon, the dragon is part of the inner life. You've got to face your dragons. Could you speak to the relationship of the inner life and all these other worlds that the hero's journeys are engaging? They're all, they're all simply metaphoric expressions of states of the inner life um, that, that, that have been rendered by one or another um, individual or group's creative impulse. Um, mm. It all begins as, as, as an interior experience. It, it, even... Even when it's cast in things like you know Odysseus and his men sailing out, mm-hmm. you know it, it's it, it, it's a metaphor for an mm-hmm. interior experience or series of interior experiences that ultimately bring you where home. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. they ultimately bring you back to you. I mean, it's right. that you shall not cease in your wandering till you find you know arrive where you began and know the place for the first time. I mean, it is this sense that that and and it's a it's a constant knowing and renewing. I mean, be, because because I know it now, but. Ten minutes from now, or an hour from now, when I'm back on the freeways in LA, am I going to still hold yeah. this space <laughs> of of conversation that, that really we have? No, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. And so, so we go to retreat centers and we <laughs> we you know we practice yoga uh-huh. and we do all these other things. But but they're all they're all antidotes mm-hmm. um, to to quotidian reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, we mm-hmm. go on those journeys because. Our quotidian reality is 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 limited. It, mm-hmm. it, it's necessarily limited, limited by our senses and this container that I'm mm-hmm. in. And even the great writings of uh, what I refer to as the great wisdom teachings mm-hmm. of the world uh, all speak to this. Yes. And <clears throat> uh, for example, in Hinduism, you know, talking about the Maya, the the illusion that we see with our physical eyes, isn't uh, th- that which is important, and that it. Of course, if it was easy to tame the dragon or kill it, whatever, however you want to do that, or embrace, or embrace, it. Or embrace yeah. it. And love it to death. <laughs> well, they even talk about our dark side, our shadow side. Yeah, yeah. That's part of who we are. We've got to learn to yeah. not shut it off. I remember hearing about uh, uh, forms of meditation where, um, when you start getting thoughts that are starting to ramble in your head, you need to push them aside, push them. And then there's another form of meditation that says, no. Watch them and just let them float by like bubbles in the wind. Don't make them enemies. Befriend them. 
you know, that kind of thing. And then they won't bother you. It's uh, like a wonderful story from, uh, from Paramahansa's book where uh, he was being attacked by mosquitoes because he didn't have netting around his bed. But his guru had no problem. He says, because you are not in the space, in essence, where I am. You have not embraced them, if you will. And when he did, yeah, yeah, yeah. they didn't bother him anymore. Yeah. You're fighting him. You're fighting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we spend a lot of our lives fighting ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, we really, really do. And uh, or, or curing ourselves. Yeah. You know, I, I think that one of the one of the secrets of the Holy Grail is the opportunity to drink in your own reflection. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so before before we, uh, I want to shift and ask some more about the Joseph Campbell Foundation and stuff okay. too. But before we do, there's just one more one more Campbell. Thing uh, that he talks about that's so meaningful to me, I want to bring it up. The way he talks about the wasteland, and one of the and, and he really goes into the wasteland motif and redemption. And and we talked about you know Vogler's influence on Beauty and the Beast. Maybe there's one of the really great examples of the wasteland return. Whatever, there are tons of examples of redemption of the wasteland. Disney does it every time. Well, uh, the wasteland that Campbell. One of the ways that he looked at the wasteland was the uh, he looked at the way that mythology could become uh, a negative prison on how people live their lives and how you could actually purposefully shape a mythology to create uh, an imprisonment on, against the, the creative spirit of humanity. And he sees this as one of the great downfalls of, of what mythology was supposed to be when it starts to become a state tradition where it's reinforcing the state, reinforcing the social function. And um, I just feel so strongly about... Uh, Reacting to that wasteland, it's always threatening all the time. There's always a threat of the of the social wasteland generated by a collectively uh, uh, draining myth. And I, I don't know. There's well, well it, it it it's it's created by our own need to mythologize. Mm-hmm. I mean that, that that's the irony of it. I mean what I mean is is you know, the wasteland is 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 the place where people lead inauthentic lives. Okay. And our culture is about that. Our culture, you just, all you got to do is stand in a supermarket checkout line, right? And look at, look at the magazine covers or turn on reality TV. What's happening is we're putting up stories um, that distract and, and that keep us from, our authentic, from an exploration of our own authentic story. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, we're inviting, you know... Jungians or Campbellians or you know or, or Kardashians. I mean, uh-huh. we, yeah, we, right. we 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 forget that again. That uh, go back to go back and look at what these kinds of figures have been historically, and you get back to like the patron saints. It's not that person you're trying to be. You're only the only value of that person's life is is is, is as a mirror. Mm. Okay, but mm. when the mirrors we have around us in the popular culture give us no space, mm. well, you know, we talked about this the other, you know the other day. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. the the fact that that you know, when Joe says the mythologies of tomorrow are in the psyches of the artists of today, you know, the the understanding there is that in, inside each individual is an authentic story. Mm. Okay, is an authentic, unique story, um, and Jung says. You know, evil comes into the world because people don't have a place to tell their stories. Hmm. On the other hand, um, you know, an- another guy said, "Don't throw your pearls before swine." Yeah. Okay, so that was another JC. And, <laughs> and, and, and 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 when you live in a culture, um, you know, where 
your your authentic story is devalued because you know it doesn't have ratings mm -hmm. um, or it's not on You're the cover. You're constantly told not to be you. Don't not, be you. Don't, don't right, be you. Don't right, be you. Right, be this right, way. Right, yeah. Right. Right. And yeah. so so there needs that space, and there needs to be people, Richard, like you, who who are 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 fair witnesses and and invite people to tell them their stories, and they know that that they you know that that you will honor the authenticity of that. And, and that's a very rare thing. I mean, it used to be, you know, it used to be, <laughs> I, again, one of my favorites is in, in the Mythic Journeys film from, from the Mythic Journeys, Tom Blue Wolf is <clears throat> sitting there and, uh, and uh, he says, you know, here's the, here, here's the problem. He says, so we, he said, we, you know, we, we're all sitting as people and, and the first person says, you know, my, my people came from the East on purple horses and mm. they rode it. And somebody goes, wait a minute, the last time you told this story, they were blue horses. And he goes, oh yeah, he says, but you have such a beautiful purple shirt on. <laughs> and everybody goes, oh, good story. And then the next person says, well, our people came up on the back of a turtle. And, you know, and, and, and everybody goes, oh, good story. And then the black robes say, no, no, no. It was Adam and it was Eve, and that's the only story. Yeah. All we can say is who invited them. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I remember a, a very early experience where it's one of those know your audience kind of things and I was conversing with this gal on the phone she was constantly calling the station and we got into conversations and I began to relate my observations my perspectives about the Genesis story and Adam and Eve and I had said something in the context which I'm not recalling now but it had offended her to the extent that I mean she just she upbraided me but when she did that and the way that she did it gave me an understanding of where she was coming from. Mm -hmm. I then understood how I had offended her. Mm -hmm. And then I began the process of reconciliation, apologizing, uh, you know, I, I was unaware of where you were coming from. I know now, and I want to respect that, you know. And, compassion. Yeah, and, and we, then, and of course, I, I neither uh, uh, stand for or against. I'm intrigued by the subject matter that we talk about. Um, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily go down the path with uh, those who would love to come on the program and talk about, you know, aliens and uh, the, the, the whole thing with the, the, the alien human thing and the lizard people and the small people and all. It's, that's the outer life. And we're going back to Joseph Campbell and the inner life. That's what's important. And you want to deal with the aliens and the, and the little people? Deal with the aliens and the little people within yourself. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I was very intrigued by something that Campbell said uh, to Moyer when they began to talk about the dualism. And I struggled with this uh, for some time, even recently, where the, the great wisdom teachings talk about where we're from. The one. This is what the writings say. Whether we are or not, who knows. Where we're going to, the one. But here, it's dualism. And I go, why? Why did we leave the one to go back to the one? You know, the whole, the whole dynamic. Mm -hmm. But what he said in terms of the dualism was, in terms of Moyers, I think his query about, uh, um, you know, trying to push away the bad stuff, you know, the dark stuff. And, you know, he, he says, no, it's all good. It's all it's all part of the all. It's kind of like uh, if you look at the genesis, uh, the creation. God created everything, right? Including the devil. So isn't everything on God kind of thing? You know what I'm saying? Then you ate that apple. And, 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 <laughs> exactly. 
I mean, it's just, you know, we live, we perceive our world in two dimensions. I mean, yeah. two eyes. To, we, we measure everything by discrimination, and that's the scientific method. How high, how low. Yeah. How in, how out. Mm -hmm. You know, how good, how bad. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, it, it's, it's just what we do. And yet, um, Joe, Joe, Joe used to, because he'd say, oh, you know, this is, he, he would make this argument, and then, and then people would say, but how can you, you know, all the bloodshed in the world, all the stuff going on. How can you how can you say it like that? And, and he said, think of it for a moment as a physics experiment. Think that you have a, a chamber in which you have superheated air and a chair chamber in which you have super cooled air, and there's a divider between them. Mm -hmm. When you remove that divider, what happens? You get a thunderstorm. Exactly. <laughs> it rushes together, lightning, thunder, horrible stuff. But what comes out of that thunderstorm? You get, get, get rain, rain, yeah. water, water, yeah. which is the basis of all life. Mm -hmm. So, so even though you can focus on the distinction of the superheat or the super cold, mm -hmm. or you can function on the collision when they come together, mm -hmm. or you can function on the water that is the common result of yeah. all of that. And mm -hmm. so, so I choose to focus on the water. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some some people, um, sociologists, mm -hmm. would probably. For focus on the, you know, the hot and the cold and the difference. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some people, um, I don't know, uh, perhaps filmmakers are going to focus on, on the thunderstorm yeah. because that's good <laughs> drama, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's all part of this process that, that leads us back to a recognition of the common element that underlies it all. What would Campbell say to someone who is observing, and we'll look at the media in particular, uh, movies and television programs and has basically become weary of the stories because they're all the same. They're, they're very repetitive. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, of course, of Star Wars. Star Trek Next Generation in particular, a friend of mine and I conversed about it all the time and he made a wonderful statement to me, says that he believed that the Star Trek Next Generation series in particular was our modern day mythology. And so I started watching it from that perspective. It was great. But someone who has become weary of those stories, where do you think he would direct that person? Well, you know, I can't channel Joe. <laughs> However, <laughs> I, was, I was asked this very question while giving a lecture at the end of a lecture in Brazil some years back. And this person said this whole thing and, uh, you know, talk, and talking specifically about how we were incessantly barraged by all of this on television. And my, my response was perhaps glib, but I said, turn off the TV. Um, you know, and, 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 and so, so the, the real response would be find the antidote. Um, you know, I, I do recall, uh, again, some conversation where you know, somebody said to Joe, well, you must have a spiritual practice. And he said, <clears throat> he said yeah, you know. Underlining I, books. I, underlined sciences <laughs> in books, that, okay? Yes. However, what, what he didn't say is, what did he do when he did underline sentences in books? He swam, okay? Mm. He, he, he swam. He, 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 He's an all-American runner, wasn't right, he? Right, right, right. And so, so, so it, it's this balance thing. You know, it's, I had another friend who said, you know, man, I, I, you know, he's a computer programmer. And then he told me about how he was having really trouble. He was trying to, to do Zen meditation. And, and I said, huh? I mean, you sit all day in front of a computer screen, and now you want to sit all day on a cushion, <laughs> and you think it's going to somehow... It's not your antidote. No, it's not, not your it. antidote. Right, no, right. get up and move rocks. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. do, do that. I mean, Jung, you know, he, 
what did you do as a kid that made time stand still? And he, you know, sat on rocks. <laughs> right. He moved yeah. rocks around in the dirt. And so, you know, he stopped his practice, you know, in adulthood and he built Bollingen, this right. tower. <laughs> Out of rocks. So a lot he, with his own hands. Right, with his own hands. He took that impulse that had gotten buried underneath all of the shoulds mm-hmm. and obligations yeah. and responsibilities that we take on willingly, lovingly, hopefully, mm-hmm. but they, they still, you know, they, they weigh us. And so the, the artist knows to do this. I mean, the really good artists, you know, they go into the studio. The studio is the sacred space. It's the place apart. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and most people don't have that, or if they do, um, a lot of people really just do, okay, I'm comfortable sitting, so I'm going to do more sitting. Mm-hmm. And, and you miss the whole point that, that, that it's about stretching yourself. It's about, mm-hmm. it's about going you know, beyond what you can conceive of and going, and that means there's a, there's I love a stretch the, uh, in that. The term lila, the Sanskrit term, uh, it's, it means something like divine play, but the idea is that whether it's hard, right. bad, good, sour, whatever experience you have in life, it's the soul trying to stretch itself right. across the full richness of human experience. Uh, let's switch and talk a little bit about the JCF, and, and we've just got a, you know, a few minutes left. Um, you know, I, 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 you guys have been around for 25 years now? Yeah. 25 years. And, 25 and years come uh, next, well, come January. 25 proactive years with, with a lot of things. I'm, I, uh, we can talk about Opus, and we can talk about the archives. We can talk about the Pacifica Graduate Institute's mythology program. Um, and also the Mythological Roundtable Network. These are all, uh, in my mind, enormous initiatives that have had huge impacts on a, on a whole lot of people. And that's not to mention, you know, uh, the many publications that the JCFs continued to posthumously publish uh, of Campbell's. And, and I've just got to make a plug, of course, for the Holy Grail book coming out based on his thesis with Roger Loomis, uh, which who was, you know, the field leading expert on, on the Holy Grail at the time. So his master's thesis is being reworked and... and, and well, actually, we're publishing the master's thesis as it was. Okay. <clears throat> but what we've done is we've also <clears throat> embedded that, if you will, in all of his later writings and talks about, about the Grail. Um, so, so you see where he began mm-hmm. and where he took it. Wow. <clears throat> and and that's, uh, that project's being edited by the head of the mythology program at Pacifica, uh, Evan Lansing-Smith. Uh, so that sounds like a real challenge, what you just described. <laughs> Good thing it's Lance at the helm. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so anyway, I, all these are good projects to talk about. All these are huge things. And, and maybe, maybe let's start with the... Uh, Let's start with the Roundtable Network. Okay. Uh, you know, there, there's six, something like 60-plus or something around the world, and I think they're on at least five continents. I think Egypt's in and out of Africa. I'm not quite sure if, if there's an African one, but, but uh, it's, it's very spread out. South Africa. South Africa. Oh, there we go. So, so it's six continents all over the world, uh, and it's been around for, I think, also maybe 18 or about 20 years 20 years i think the first the first one was 96 ish and as far as i can tell it makes up the backbone of the global conversation about mythology uh, it makes up the backbone for the grassroots conversation for anybody that just wants to go and talk about mythology they're in cities all over the world you can go uh and yeah I, yeah well the, the 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 evolution of that um is is perhaps re- worth remarking upon um the one you know, we started we had a website in 95 96 it was very very early and the reason we did a website was because we we wanted a place where what we could what we called conversations of a higher order could occur and so we we have now i know 60,000 
uh, over the years. However, people were, were having these conversations and then they began to want to meet each other. Um, and so the first thing everybody said is, we need a Joseph Campbell study group. Mm-hmm. And we said, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. And you can go read Joseph Campbell, listen to his lecture. You don't need a study group. And we're certainly not going to give you a curriculum. Because that would, again, be exactly counter to everything we've been talking about. Um, however, you know, let's, we needed to come up with a framework um, by which we could encourage people to come together. Um, so we created mythological roundtables. Now, I had a whole, you know, we were talking before, before the show began about intellectual property, and I had a whole thing like, you know, the, the attorney said, you need to trademark mythological roundtables. And I said, I don't believe in that. I don't do this. And they said, they said, that's all well and good. But, you know, what happens when the wrong group sacrifices the wrong animal on the wrong festival day <laughs> in your name? Right. And, uh, and, and we went, oh. And they said, the only thing you can do is be able to distance yourself from it. So we created mythological roundtables, the metaphors kind of self-evidently. The knights of old would come together and they would sit together and they would be together until the, the new quest appeared, till the grail appeared or whatever you know, the challenge was. And then the literature tells us each knight went off and entered the forest where it was darkest and there was no path because to follow a path would be to follow someone else's. So they all had their individual adventures in the forest on their own paths and then they came back together to share the experience, what they'd learned. And, 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 and what they had encountered, and to look to each other for illumination, uh, a different perspective on, on what had occurred, and then they waited for the next adventure. Um, so this seemed to us a, a, a wonderful metaphor, and we recognized that for any given group, the forest would be very different, mm-hmm. metaphorically. The village would be very different. Um, now, almost every group begins and watches the power of myth and then writes us and says, now what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we say, now your adventure begins. Now you need to figure out you know, what it is that brings you together. What keeps you together? What, what adventures do you want to have together? Um, and, and that's how it began and that's how it evolved. Um, and there are 60, I believe at this point, that are chartered. Mm-hmm. We've had <clears throat> probably a couple hundred that Over have come time, and gone. Right? Um, to be a chartered round table, it's really low level. Um, you've got to meet four times a year. It's, it's going to be free. You can pass a hat to pay for your facilities, but you, know, you don't charge people to come. And, and the, the other one is we ask that, that you post your meetings on, on our website so someone in the area can find you. Um, that's it. <laughs> now, we, you know, that would seem simple, but we've we had a lot of people who don't want to post. Or you know they want to charge, or they want, and, and we'll say, fine, you do what you want, but you're not a mythological roundtable. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are plenty of people out there wanting to uh, abuse the opportunity. <laughs> oh yeah, well yeah. we've had a lot of people, you know, who who, who start, and um, and then we discover that really they're using it as a recruiting method for their agendas. For their agendas, um, and, right. and those are often psychological, but not always. Hmm. So, <laughs> therapy sessions. And I, I just found out a. George Miller ahead of a roundtable? Well, George, yeah, well, actually, the Sydney roundtable um, was looking for a place, and George Miller offered his boardroom and, in fact, insisted that his um, writers come. But and, Mad Max for anybody right. that doesn't know. And, and, the, uh, and, and I learned only, only a month, only about two months ago, um, at, at when uh, uh, Thunder Fury Road mm-hmm. um, premiered after. Best movie of summer. 
<laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so one of, one of the people who'd been a part of the roundtable said, you know, Vico developed that story out of the roundtable. And I wrote back and I said, what do you mean? And she, she said, well, for two years, the conversation in our roundtable was around what's a female hero. And, and how does a female hero, how would that be manifested today? And he said it was not at all directed toward, um, at least not consciously directed toward, there's going to be this movie. But this became something that really fascinated them because so all of the heroes that they could identify were mostly male. And, uh, and then, of course, when that's in your head and then mm -hmm. you, suddenly, you know, suddenly see the film, um, you know, it, it made me realize that I wasn't just reading into the film things that weren't there. You no. know? And I saw the matriarchal order. I saw these, you know, and it was like, whoa. Yeah. Plus, the other thing that I think is really, really significant there is not only did they bring in a female hero and the, the male hero who had been an anti-hero in the earlier things, but now is, is, is actually more heroic because the anti-hero is, is, is the third member mm -hmm. in that truck. You know, the, the, it, 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 it's the, the, the mutant, mm -hmm. okay? And, and I, I, would, I believe, I've come to believe that um, we've moved past the point of, of individual heroes. And we've moved into what I like to call an era of the gestalt hero or the ensemble hero. Mm -hmm. I, I did a program with Bill Shatner called William Shatner's Get a Life. And in the middle of <clears throat> our conversation, at one point, I, I, he, he said, I said, well, Bill, I, you know, I, I hate to disabuse you, but you weren't the hero. And he said, I wasn't. <laughs> I thought they were coming to see me. And I said, no, no, no. He said, well, who was the hero? And I said, the Enterprise. The Enterprise went beyond um, where went beyond where humans mm -hmm. can go, yeah. and and in my mind, that's why the series endured, and that's that was actually where we began that conversation, because the enterprise in which everyone is in service to, okay, now you can trade out those people, mm -hmm. but it's significant that there's three. I mean, I know from my theater background, you know, that to, in, to isolate a figure in space, you need three sources of light. To, to tackle mm -hmm. any problem and avoid that polarization, that dualism we mm -hmm. talked about, you need three perspectives. Triangulation. Triangulation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think that, and so you, and I was quite taken aback. You see that in Fury Road. Mm -hmm. you, know, you see that, you see that mm -hmm. in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Now, a sidebar, if you, if you can imagine looking head on at the Enterprise mm -hmm. from the bow. If you've ever, if you do this, and we're talking about the original series, you will see a representation of a portion of the Tree of Life. Yes. Now, I don't know if Roddenberry was influenced by that or not. All I know is there is a symbol of a metaphor <laughs> and it's the right tree the tree is a home symbol and the enterprise is a home symbol and we were talking about neil gaiman intentionally not wanting to know so that he could do things like that on accident you know yeah uh totally well with the with a few minutes left, let's talk about uh the the mythology program at pacifica that you know i i've of course got my phd from there i think it's best graduate program in the entire world uh and and it's been great to talk with you about some of where it came from okay um well where it came from is that after we started the foundation, um, the, 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 
we have we have three purposes. Um, the first is to preserve, protect, and perpetuate the work of Campbell. The second is to is to further Campbell's work, small w, which would be in comparative mythology, in comparative religion, in cross-cultural communication. And then the third is to enable people to enrich their lives by um, you know, immersing themselves in, in, in mythological perspectives. So I knew pretty much where the collected works were going to go because Joe and I started a publishing company. I had a whole list of books of his that, that we thought of things he'd done that we thought should be books. So much of what we've brought out, almost everything we've brought out posthumously was on that list. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I, I could see where that needed to go. I was stymied a little bit by the second one. And so um, uh, I wanted to know how we could further the study of myth as a, as a discipline because it appeared to me that everywhere I looked, myth was a tool of other disciplines. So, you know, comparative religion, comparative literature, um, sociology, anthropology, they all talked about myth, but it was about something that was in their field. So I went to David Miller, who was my friend and, and a colleague of Joe's, and I asked him to, to help me figure out how to do this. And so he said, um, so he identified about 100 people in the academy who were using myth in some manner or another, and we wrote a letter to all of them over his signature saying that the Joseph Campbell Foundation was trying to figure out how to foster myth in the academy, and we invited them to come all expenses paid to Los Angeles here and spend a weekend having this discussion. About half of them didn't respond. Uh, of that 50, say nominally 50 who responded, 25 of them said, Forget it, I'm not walking across the street for that populist charlatan Campbell. Hey, you know, shamans, shamans are loved in... Uh... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then about, of the, of the remaining 25, a few said, well, you know, this isn't, it's never going to happen. I'll be glad to come if, if, if this is a, a convention of anthropologists and we can talk about myth. Or if this is folklore right. and comparative, you know, then we can talk about right. myth. And there were about 12 who said, well, I don't know, but I'll come. <laughs> and... Uh, and so we spent a weekend. I was a fly. David said, "Be a fly on the wall." You know, these are academics, and uh, you know, and uh, you, you're not. <laughs> Basically, was the message. And out of that came um, three things: that there needed to be a place where young scholars could publish, because we had heard stories of folks who had really done some interesting work in myth, myth, and then had published in Parabola or something like that, and came up for tenure and were denied tenure because they had not published in a jury. Mm -hmm. And the second was that there needed a place where people could go and earn a degree in myth. And, you know, and make and, it its own field. Its own thing. Yeah. And uh, so I carried that information to Steve Eisenstadt at Pacifica and suggested that there ought to be a program, and, and he said, that's a great idea, but you know, how are we going to find a faculty? And I said, well, here's the 12 people who suggested it. Mm -hmm. And uh, David Miller signed on as chairman, and uh, some of the people who have been there, Chris Downing was among them, uh, Marion Woodman, uh, Dan Noel, who's now deceased, um, William Doty, um, pretty much all of the, uh, Jeanette Perry, who is still there, <clears throat> were all part of that initial group. And so, um, yeah, so I, I feel, um, uh, how to put it? I, I, it's an interesting situation because I, I feel very paternal, mm -hmm. but the program is no longer a child. Mm -hmm. So it's, I find, kind of feel like um, like the parent of the 15 year old who say, <laughs> "Go have your adventures," but I'm thinking, "Oh God!" Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, so so yeah, so that's it, and that's that, and, and it has it has fostered a, a lot of folk, um, yourself included, Will, who who've carried the work into new areas. 
And for Joe, that's what it would be about. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, we can preserve, protect, and perpetuate his work as well as possible, and we can foster these other social gatherings and conversations of a higher order and things. But you know, um, and in addition to the creative folks who are using the work to, for films and video games and mm -hmm. people like Richard Adams for Watership Down. Um, the you know the really getting in and 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 and, how, and what's a good metaphor tuning the engine you mm -hmm. know uh, making enhancements to the vehicle uh, understanding it better um, there's now a whole lot of people who who have immersed themselves in that through Pacifica and are now out in the world figuring out okay you know now how do I put this to work you know I'll make this the last thing that I bring up and then Richard will have a few questions and we'll, we'll draw it a close but, but one of the things you bring up is one of the most important things to me which is recognizing that the field of mythology is, is unlike the other academic fields not meant to be exclusively academic right. now that doesn't mean it should be any less academic it's a both and situation not a half ass thing but, but the point is, is to be uh, fully academic but to recognize that the field of mythology is that field more than any other field because it's about story that dovetails into art, as more most specifically story art. You know, so so mythology, if it ever becomes an academic field that doesn't cater and have a relationship with with uh, storytellers, it's gone astray. Uh, and that's one thing that's so exciting to me about mythology is, you, in the same way you had everybody in for anthropology and history, where, wanting to pull myth into their direction, that's because actually mythology is what's capable of pulling all of them into a center yes and and if from that center all of academia can channel its way into the storytelling artistic world and that's what we see when Campbell draws together stories and history and philosophy from every corner into a book that changes the artistic environment for as far as we know indefinitely well where we began our conversations will the the, the you know I, I, I applaud everything you've just said I would gloss it slightly and say that, that the, the message of Joe in his own work and Pacifica program is to say that you, you can be scholarly without being academic. Mm. And it, in, order nice. to, in order to have credibility in the academy, you must be a scholar. Mm -hmm. You need to cite your sources. You need to know how to do that. And Joe, even in his books that written for a popular audience, was scrupulous mm -hmm. about where he got his information, tracing it down, trying to refer to the most recent edition so if somebody wanted to pursue it, they could. Hmm. So, so this idea of making, you know, of, of recognizing the popular embrace of the subject and yet grounding it in, 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 in traditional scholarship mm -hmm. is what makes that program to me unique. Mm -hmm. Well, Richard, you have your set of questions. We always do. I do indeed. And Bob, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. It's uh, a pleasure to have had this opportunity to talk with you. First question that I have for you that I ask all of my guests is, who is Bob Walter? Um, God's fool. Nice. Okay. What is it that you hope to or want? I'll call you Parsifal. <laughs> <laughs> And even though you may have sort of addressed this throughout the program, I ask this directly. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? What do I want to achieve or hope to achieve? Um, you know, I don't, I don't have an answer for that, Richard. Uh, I, I hope that, my, um, that what I do serves as a kind of model for 
someone that uh, I, I'm not goal-directed like that. Um, what, what, what my operative thing, I, I've, I've metaphorically uh, worked very, most of my life to structure what, what I hope is a very stable canoe with the idea that I'm putting it out in this river and it's going to take me somewhere. And I can't presume to know where that is. What I can only presume to do is to, is to commit myself to using my paddle as little as possible. I'll use my paddle if I go into a still water. I'll use my paddle to avoid the rapids. Um, but I'm trusting that the river is going to take me someplace that I can't imagine. Um, and, and, uh, and that and my life has been, um, uh, has been that in practice. Uh, and, and so uh, in this society in which we live in, in which, you know, a parent puts a kid in kindergarten uh, and makes and, 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 and structures that child's life and all of the stories and experiences with the idea that that kid's going to go to Harvard or, or MIT or come out, you know, with a, you know, a six-figure income as a computer mm -hmm. programmer. That's not what I'm about, okay? What I'm about is saying it's a wonderful adventure we're on. Um, and if you can trust the river and if you can put your focus on making sure that the canoe you're in is as sturdy, stable, and provisioned as possible, um, then you know, you're going to have a grand adventure. I can't help but to interject with uh, this in, in Gilgamesh, when he finally crosses, finally gets towards the end of his journey, finally crosses the ocean, and finally reaches the western shores, and he talks to Untapishtim, the, uh, the Noah figure of the, of the uh, Sumerian tradition, or Babylonian. He, uh, he tells him, Gilgamesh, of course, asks, how, how do I become immortal? And the first thing, he gives a whole story, but the first line is, turn your house into a boat. Because he's the ultimate boatman, Untapishtim. And uh, I think that that's a, one of the keys to the immortality. Uh, and key, not just immortality, but anyway, I'm just trying to say, you're my Untapishtim right now. <laughs> oh, well, that said, I hope you realize there's a life jacket under your feet. <laughs> and finally, though I'm sure that the answer is probably uh, pretty obvious to most everybody, but it doesn't have to be exclusive. Who inspires you? You, right now. Will, right now. Um, the people who inspire me are the people I encounter. And, 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 you know, I was talking about staying over in Chinatown and just being really inspired by seeing these elderly Chinese on the street with their umbrella going into their favorite dim sum shop. Um, I, I share this with Joe. I think. I mean, I think his, his, his passion was his enthusiasm, but he had to schedule his life. He had a very rigorous mm -hmm. schedule because he would be, get so caught up in other people's passions that mm. the afternoon would go away. Yeah. Will and I spent a wasted of I didn't realize it was like four and a half hours. But that to me is, is, is what's so rich yeah. about you know, being in this human. So, what inspires me is like right what's there in front of me, um, and and I know that that, that in 24 hours in, in, when I go away it's going to be a dream, it's going to be a memory, um, and if I want to encapsulate that and encode it in a story, if I want to pass that experience on, I need to be enraptured by it right here right now, and so what inspires me is right what's in front of my face, and the belief that 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 has some magic totemic value for me that the river has brought me to this place for a reason every and moment every moment and and that that i can only recognize that moment if i can be present in it mm -hmm. 
I want to thank you so much for joining Will and I on this program with Sophia, exploring the depths of myth and wisdom here on Tell Me Your Story. It's been a great pleasure to have you. It's been wonderful to be with both of you. And Will, thank you. Will, thank you for joining us as well, and we look forward to talking with you again in the coming weeks and months on uh, having other guests in studio to talk uh, about mythology and uh, myth of Sophia. Sounds great. See you all then. I'm Richard Dugan. This has been Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices, knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. This has been the Myth of Sophia series. And until next time, love to law.